0: Welcome to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this our 66th episode, I'll be talking to Joseph Scrimshaw, podcaster, comedian and writer, about Twin Peaks. Along the way, we discuss the consequences of throwing a cheese curd at a mummy, Dale Cooper as a role model for non-toxic masculinity, and the careful balance of a story set halfway between horror and hope. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress.
1: We are building a religion. We are building it bigger. We are widening the corridors and adding more lanes building a religion a limited edition we're now accepting callers for these pendant keys Chains. To resist it is useless. It is useless to resist it. His cigarette is burning, but he never seems to ash.
0: He All right, Joseph. His so for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and unique snowflake?
1: All right, a beautiful and unique snowflake. My name is Joseph Scrimshaw, and I think, you know, my name, Scrimshaw, alone is pretty snowflakey because there aren't that many Scrimshaws. I'm a writer and a comedian. I started out in life and in my career in Minneapolis. Minneapolis, Minnesota. I moved to Los Angeles about three years ago now and I do a lot of different kinds of comedy. I mostly do a lot of stand-up now. I do a lot of podcasting. I have a podcast called Obsessed where I just talk to people about something they like a lot. Then I have another podcast called Force Center which is all about Star Wars and I do a lot of my performing and writing these days kind of in the general genre pop culture world which is not anything I planned just sort of happened because a lot of the things that went well for me happened to be genre pop culture related
0: yeah and you've had quite a roster of guests on obsessed i know i initially started listening because you had hal lublin on talk about professional wrestling and i love professional wrestling and i love hal lublin so it was like chocolate and peanut butter (laughs) but i mean you do, like, yearly shows at DragonCon, and you've had, well, I don't know what percentage of the pie graph of the original MST3K cast you've had on, but it's a serious chunk.
1: Yeah, I think it is most at this point. Yeah, Bill, and I just had Frank on for the first time, and Trace, and Mary Jo, and Kevin Murphy. Yeah, yeah, so a lot of my entrance into sort of the world of performing outside of Minnesota a little bit more was becoming friends with Bill Corbett of Mystery Science Theater and Rift tracks and we just started kind of doing more and more stuff together
0: yeah which is great were you someone who had watched a lot of Mr. Science Theater when you were younger no which is sometimes awkward <laughs> because you know I was gonna say it was either gonna be one or the other it was either you gonna be yes and I, I had to really deal with you know having to to say like oh wow this is a voice I've heard coming out of a robot and then it could have been the other one and he's just like reference and you're like no <laughs> yeah, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> no, I mean, Bill's very down to very.
1: Everyone involved is very, very down to earth. I think they all kind of can't believe that that it's become what it's become, and and that people still love it and remember it and quote it. But no, I I saw it in its first season, like in a friend's basement. We were just drawing pictures together, <laughs> which is the thing you do, I guess. <laughs> I saw the very first season when it was just on Minnesota, like, cable access, basically. And then, you know, I saw the movie, and I liked it. I always liked it, but I was never an uber fan. So when I first met Bill, he came to one of my comedy shows that was a part of the Minnesota Fringe Festival, told me he really liked it, and then somebody came up to me and was like, I can't believe that just happened. He's like, you mean that a, a nice gentleman told me that he liked my show? He's was like, no, that's Bill <laughs> Corbett, for God's sake, you fool. That's Bill Corbett. I was like, oh,
0: okay, okay. <laughs> You just reminded me when you mentioned the Fringe Festival, and this may be a dud topic, so I'll cut it out if I have to. (laughs) But I've recently learned about the State Fair. Oh, yeah. What's the line? Something get-together. The Great Minnesota Get-Together that's the one yeah yes my friends aaron hunter and Aidan sullivan and a few others were being very very emphatic about the great minnesota get together so were you a, a proponent of this did you visit oh yes i
1: visited i liked it when i was a kid because it was just this huge spectacle and then i had some mischievous fun there in my 20s and then as i got a little bit older i was just like i don't need to go to a very very hot place full of (laughs) thousands of human and eat things that are very very bad for me suddenly that does not sound like as much fun but it is really amazing in retrospect because I grew up kind of thinking like well every state has a state fair and obviously plenty do but Minnesota is really intense partially I think because of the whole sort of summer psychology of Minnesota because the winters are really brutal so there isn't as much activity so then summer comes every second of summer is this explosive gotta get out there gotta do things gotta enjoy this in the state fair I think is just kind of a emblematic of that.
0: It's not snowing, so we will be outside, God damn it! <laughs> we are going to do things. We are going to have highly organized fun. Yes. Although I got to ask, what is mischievous fun in your 20s, Joseph?
1: Oh, it was going to the state fair with friends, ironically. Oh, I gotcha of this sort of like, let's go and kind of not even be cruel about it, but like, you know, growing up, it was like, oh, it's for kids. And then I got to be uh, like in my early 20s and there was a bunch of people who were like, hey, let's just go there. Wouldn't it be weird that we're at the state fair and (laughs) walk around and drink beer and make jokes? And in particular, I went to the haunted house and I don't like haunted houses. I love horror movies, but I don't like it when people touch me Mm -hmm. (laughs) in haunted house. People can touch me in real life. (laughs) They've got these very young kids playing monsters you know and one of the kids grabbed me like grabbed my shoulder and it freaked me out and it made me angry and i was trying to impress the girl i was with and i had some cheese curds, so i threw a cheese curd at a mummy (laughs) and the mummy suddenly dropped his scary act and said you can't throw stuff man no throwing stuff
0: and we had to leave oh my god that's I may have to mention this out of context. Just, I, like, I normally don't plan what I put at the beginning of the episode as the intro, but I yeah. may say about the time you threw a cheese curd out of mummy. <laughs> it's a very Minnesota thing to do. All right, well, that does lead us into my usual question. So, you grew up in Minnesota.
1: Yes. Uh, so, I was born in a very small town in northern Minnesota called Brainerd, and people from the Midwest know Brainerd because it's kind of a resort town. It's up by lakes. Like many things, it's very beautiful, but it is also a very small town with a lot of the problems that come with a very small small town of there's nothing to do, so people drink a lot or do drugs, and it can be a rough place. So my parents wisely moved away, and we moved all around Minnesota. We briefly lived in Portland, Oregon. I added it up at one point. I lived 19 different homes with my parents before I finally moved out. So I moved around a lot in my youth, and then when I was in my teens, we settled in Minneapolis proper, which is the big city in Minnesota.
0: I was going to say, I'm feeling a bit simpatico here because, yeah, I I had a similar situation, except with the exception of, of starting in the small town, but yeah, I moved all around, Canada roughly around the same amount oh really okay Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things where, because do you find that, you know, you meet people that are from places where you've lived and you can be like, oh, I know that it has this store and it has this place and this person lives there and you can kind of get on with people that you meet.
1: Yeah, yeah, a little bit. like But time has, you know, gone on and a lot of places have changed so much that it's weird because my memory of them, they're kind of frozen in time. Like, I've spent a lot of time in Portland doing shows in the last couple of years. My memories of, of living in Portland, Oregon are so tied to the time that it's weird to just go to Portland and
0: go like oh yeah well there's there's a Walmart <laughs> that's not what I remember <laughs> Yeah, I felt a little bit that way with Burnaby in Vancouver and being like, I used to go and bring, it sounds like I'm from the 20s. I used to bring in bottles for 20 cents a piece and <laughs> I would get enough money to go to the Dolphin Theater, which was two bucks because it was a theater near you. So I could see third or fourth run of movies there. Oh, nice. But that's gone. Yeah. Long gone. Long gone. The, I think the facade is heritage listed. So they've kept the facade, but now it's like a shoe store or something. And I'm like, that's no fun. <laughs> you, you can't buy anything there for pop bottle money. Yeah. Damn it. Yeah. So, yeah,
1: sometimes it's like the memories are stuck in time, but then sometimes it's like a little bit of the mood that remains and having been able to spend a little bit more time in Portland as an adult, I think a little bit of that attitude of Portland of we're really independent, but also very creative and very experimental. I think that got into me at a young age and that has remained mm-hmm. the same. So I like to try to drill down. I think it's just kind of how my brain is wired to like the essence of an idea. I have discovered that about different places I've lived, of like, what do they really represent because of the kind of people who live there and the attitudes that they have and what can survive, you know, the passage of time and is still sort of essentially the same about a place. Anytime I see a show about small town or even political discussions about what affects a small town, I have a better understanding of that because of the mm-hmm. limited amount of time I spent in Brainerd. I lived in a town in Minneapolis, or not in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, called St. Cloud, which is like right in between Brainerd and Minneapolis. And it used to be like St. Cloud is far away because it is an hour drive from Minneapolis. But it is this sort of growth, this kind of, it's not a suburb, it's its own town, but it starts growing and expanding so much that it basically touches the other big towns around it. So I feel like I have a kind of understanding of places like that in America, too, that used to be their own town, but they're just sort of, everything is growing and connecting as you get more and more big box stores I think there's something about that about that idea in America that different places used to be sort of their own place and they still are but everything is sort of growing together and touching (laughs) that that changes what the place is
0: I look forward to the eventual mega city one that takes up half the east coast (laughs) yes it's happening so growing up as you did moving all over the place what sort of kid were you
1: I was definitely a sensitive, artsy, geeky little kid that was just sort of always the truth. Like very first memories are comic books and Star Wars, and they immediately spoke to me. There was no need to be like, maybe you should focus on this. It was just uh, they spoke to me immediately from my earliest memories.
0: So what sort of comic books were you reading?
1: I kind of conflate actual comic books and superheroes in general. Like one of my first actual memories is old reruns of the 1960s Adam West Batman TV show and drawing pictures of that. A thing that happens to run into my family, which I think actually does tie to the DNA of the Scrimshaw name, is everybody in my family is good at drawing, just sort of naturally. So I think comic books and superheroes and early compliments are tied together in my head because I would just draw pictures and people go like, oh, wow, that's good. You can draw well. So I think maybe that was a part of why I gravitated toward them. And then my grandfather would just like buy a bunch of comic books and just kind of have them around sometimes. I think I have a set of like about, I don't know, like 80 comic books comic books from when I was about four years old, that were just random collections of comic books. But I really gravitated toward the superheroes, towards Batman and Superman and Captain America. And I really grew up liking Robin because I have an older brother. He's three years older than me. So we always divided characters and he was Batman, and I was Robin. Being the younger brother, Robin, the guy who is really good,
0: but still the sidekick really spoke to me. Yeah, and I think there's something about, like I've talked to a few people about it, where there are some kids, myself included, who would just gravitate to either the sidekick role, or if you're being a bunch of characters, you'll be the smaller one, because you get to do stuff and be funny, and then you get to be rescued at the end, and that's cool. (laughs) <laughs> you have your role <laughs> yeah i did not
1: want to be rescued i think that's what was powerful oh, no. to me about robin is like robin in a lot of the comics i started collecting robin was like yes i'm batman sidekick but i'm more than that i'm my own person the comic book that really exploded for me it's so like i read them and all that but then when i was about nine years old the dime dropped for me of like oh if i go back to Seven Eleven every month there will be a new Teen Titans comic book, Ah. and I can follow the story. And Robin is the leader of Teen Titans, and there's a lot in there about him being under the shadow of Batman, and how he respects and admires and appreciates Batman, and everything that Batman's done for him but he wants to be his own dude. I have the first appearance of Nightwing when he give, when Dick Grayson oh, wow. stops being Robin and becomes Nightwing, and I think that was very much like, yeah, I appreciate my older brother. I appreciate my parents having strong opinions about everything in the world, but I would like to have my own opinions too. I want to be Nightwing. Look how Robin turned into Nightwing. That's what I want to do. I presume you also took up the disco collar and the... <laughs> I, you know, I, costume. I get strangely cranky about the disco joke. I totally understand it. It tracks, but mm-hmm. that comic book was so important to me. I liked at the time that the artist, George Perez, was trying so hard to make fancy, intricate designs, and it was different. I recognize now. It's dumb. His new costume's better, but I liked it very much <laughs> at the time.
0: No, no, I'm with you there. Admittedly, I was reading during the times when I thought the costumes were really great. Like, I loved that Spider-Man had the webbings under his arms that looked like little wings. And then I saw how ridiculous that got, and I went... Oh, maybe that was a bad idea. Right. So So you're the pouches era, right? Like, you love pouches. (laughs) I was of the era where the pouches were so ubiquitous that I didn't even notice it. It was just like, (laughs) oh, that's what superheroes wear. And then you look back and you go, oh, no. No. No, 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 no. No. I attempted to explain Shatterstar's haircut to someone as being (laughs) like, okay, it's kind of like a poofy mushroom cut, but also a little bit spiky. And there are little braids on the sides. But the sides are also shaved, and there's also <laughs> a thin ponytail that goes to his waist. I don't, I, I don't know. <laughs> Trust me, it's cool. It's different. It's all things to all people. Yeah. But the most important thing is that it is cool. <laughs> now, I was going to say, with those, I'm going to make a reference to, and I presume that everyone in Portland knows each other. Uh, do you know the podcast Tighten Up the Defense? I do not. Well, it was originally called Teen Titan Wasteland. And this okay. guy, Nathaniel Hubbard, and his uh, stepbrother, Corey, who basically go through and reread all the old, the original Teen Titans run. And then they switch to new Teen Titans when they got, you know, Raven and Starfire and everybody in. So the yeah. stuff that you were reading. It's a hoot. it's Because if you know Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, it's kind of like that, but a little bit more kind of off the cuff and irreverent because they drink when they do it so (laughs) those New Teen Titan comics were very important like they were some of the biggest stuff out there at the time and they're also fantastically drawn by George Perez yeah they're they're really amazing and I think they don't get enough credit I think for being
1: such a seismic shift where DC fully embraced the Marvel model that you know Marvel created and revolutionized comics in the 60s with let's include some soap opera elements let's include people's lives I gravitated toward Robin because I always liked him for all these reasons that I was talking about but then when I got it and I was you know on the cusp of going into puberty these characters that I already related to were talking about the struggles of being teens and becoming adults and it was this soap opera story like that's a huge part of what the power of those stories were, and I feel like Marv Wolfman as a writer and George Perez as the co-writer, were really the first to bring that to DC fully in those comic books. And
0: I feel like they should get more credit for that. I'm right there with you. I agree. So I will help to champion your cause. (laughs) Good. Thank you. (laughs) And remember, kids, if you ever want to disguise who you are, just put on a pair of sunglasses and change your name from Coriander to Corey Anders and you can become a famous model, even if you're orange. <laughs> yep, and they, as long as your hair is not streaming as you fly when you're a model, nobody will know. Even if it's made of orange alien fire. <laughs> exactly. So initially when you wanted to come on the show, you wanted to tell me about something that I tangentially know, but I've always stayed on the periphery of, and especially I think it's increasingly relevant considering what's currently on TV. So Joseph, I'm going to get comfy— Tell me about Twin Peaks.
1: Oh, I would be delighted to. I love Twin Peaks with all of my heart. Part of the reason that I offered it to you is, I know your podcast is all about what like what is formative for you, and certainly mm-hmm. like Star Wars and Doctor Who were formative, but I get lots of opportunities to talk about them. And Twin Peaks, even though it's resurged in popularity with the new season that just finished on Showtime, it's still, given how popular all things genre are, it's still a little on the niche side so it's a great opportunity to talk about it. So Twin Peaks, without any spoilers for you, because you should watch it, is the story of a small town. A girl gets murdered, an FBI agent comes to investigate, and from this very tantalizing mystery, we open up all the secrets of the town, and as the show in the mythology continues, we open up the story of America and the horrors that are lurking underneath, and a whole very bizarre art house mythology of other beings other places other ways of understanding existence itself that's a hell of an elevator pitch (laughs) (laughs) yeah i wasn't even working on it it just came out of my soul because that's i mean it really (laughs) is what twin peaks is and part of it is you can see the two main creators david lynch and mark frost david lynch is obviously you know huge auteur director and he directs all the seminal episodes of the original series, and then he directed all of the episodes of this new season that just concluded. But Mark Frost is in there, too, and and he has a very specific outlook. But between the two of them, you can really see over the course of this whole story of this artistic process where, like, let's start with this idea. Hey, that leads us to this idea. Hey, that leads us to this idea. And it's very, very organic. And some of it has this, like, surprising great rhythm where, like, oh, wow, there's no way that 1990 they meant for that line to have this resonance with the line that they just wrote in 2017 but they do and they've just sort of followed that organic path and it's sort of like you know if you ever hear people like complain about Lost or debate like how much did they know where they were going or like the same thing with Battlestar Galactica David Lynch and Mark Frost are open about it yeah we weren't sure where we were going but we hit on an idea and then they were like oh we like that idea let's go over there it's like the beautiful flowing artistic version of yeah we don't know we're figuring it out as we go. There's spaghetti. We're throwing it at the wall. And the spaghetti becomes beautiful designs or a horrible monster, maybe. I wouldn't be surprised to see a spaghetti monster pop up in Twin Peaks. Anything could happen.
0: <laughs> see, I feel like the osmosis that I've got of Twin Peaks is always like a bunch of just really weird static images. Like there's the one of the blonde lady looks like she's about to bite the guy. Although I assume she's screaming. Uh, There's a lady with a log. There's an incredibly tall man who also played Lurch. There's a dead woman wrapped in blue plastic. There's like, it's all these sort of interconnected series of things and jokes about coffee and cherry pie. And it's one of those things where I started watching Doctor Who, like maybe five years after the revival started. Okay. But even without having actually seen any of it. I had a good idea of what it was, either just through you know reading about it or hearing people talk about it or whatever. Apart from knowing that it was in the same kind of time slot as X Files and is often lumped in with a discussion of oh, you know, weird shows in the '90s, I have no idea what actually happens in Twin Peaks. (laughs) Yeah, and that makes sense because a lot of the images are really iconic, they're really
1: powerful, and they're shorthand, and they're you know people can make easy jokes or easy memes out of them. And there is a surface level to the show where like yeah. Yeah, the characters in this small town of Twin Peaks, especially, you know, in the original run, the first two seasons, they really like coffee and cherry pie and donuts. So it's this very surface level way of discussing the show that's got a lot going on underneath the surface. Mm-hmm. And the X-Files thing, X-Files only exists because of Twin Peaks. It You know, it's okay. not a simultaneous thing at all. It exists because of Twin Peaks. The first episode of X-Files makes a couple of nodding jokes to like, yeah, 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 we know it's Twin Peaks, but different, we know. <laughs> and David Duchovny even was on on Twin Peaks before he was cast as Mulder. Oh, no way. And in fact, it took me a little while to get into X-Files because I watched the first episode and I was just mad that it was clearly (laughs) grabbing some ideas from Twin Peaks, even though it was acknowledging it, but it wasn't Twin Peaks. And I was just like, no, you are not Twin Peaks. And then I came around (laughs) from my youthful anger about it. (laughs) To me, like a couple of the powerful things about it is the main character, which I'm sure you have picked up images and jokes about. Dale uh, Cooper. Dale Cooper. Yeah, FBI Special Agent Dale Cooper. He talks into a little tape recorder to someone named Diane. Exactly. See, you know a lot. The really cool thing about him is I think he was really, really groundbreaking in terms of a male role model, because he had a lot of the traditional signifiers of what a man should be. He was a great marksman with a gun. He was handsome but in an odd way but he was very you know striking he was charming with the ladies he is flirting or has multiple relationships through all of the different uh, iterations of Twin Peaks but along with that he was very very sensitive thought being kind was important thought being intuitive was important but it was not a pushover in any way so like if he is interrogating someone and somebody is giving him grief he can become very hard and firm But it's never in a, like, I'm gonna rip my clothes off, show you how, you know, chiseled my chest is and threaten to punch you. (laughs) It's... You know, and this is in the early 90s, you know, when masculinity still was. You know how we'll fix Vietnam? We'll send one badass guy there, and he can take (laughs) care of Vietnam, you know, with the whole sort of Rambo mentality, which, you know, it has its place, that's great, but I had never seen anyone like Dale Cooper, who was funny and charming, and one of the most important relationships of the original TV show is his relationship with the local sheriff, Harry S. Truman. And they very quickly bond, and it is not any sort of, there's no bro jokes. There's no, like, I love you, man. There's no, like, it's funny that we're dudes and we love each other. They establish in the very first episode that the FBI can come in and just lord it over the small town authorities. Truman, the sheriff, is really anxious to say, like, I know you're in charge. And Cooper is very anxious to say, like, but I want to respect that this is your town and you know what's going on. And they just strike this great bond of just friendship in mutual admiration. And there's nothing like jokey or awkward about it. It's just actual good, intimate relationship between men. So I realized that when I liked it as a kid, I was responding to a lot of those things. I don't know if I was fully aware and able to articulate them, but now. As I'm older, I'm realizing, like, that is a lot of what drew me to this show.
0: Go figure. A show from the early 90s where they're kind of skipping the toxic masculinity bullshit. Yeah. Good. I like that. They're more than skipping it. They
1: actively shame it because all of the bad guys are poster childs for toxic masculinity. This show dives under the surface of that very, very quickly of, like, yes, you are posturing. Yes, you are successfully violent. But either you're hollow because of that and you don't have any true relationships Or it is clearly a mask for your own fears and vulnerability that you are going to lash out at other people. So it was great at chipping away at there's no point in trying to put on this mask of masculinity. But at the same time, like I said, it wasn't this very like loose and flowing whatever, like there should never be conflict. You should always back down and everything's peaceful. It was also the characters who were good were also like very proactive about we must do good. We must be strong and firm. So it's this amazing
0: balance of what uh, masculinity can be. That's fantastic. When it comes to the sort of the plot elements, I know it's, in theory, a procedural, right? It's meant to be an investigation show. But from the sounds of it, a lot of it is sort of dedicated to the town and developing that, or does that happen organically? Like, tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so a procedural is not quite the right term because it's a murder mystery, so that was, I think, also one of the things that kind of sent shockwaves through television at the time, that not only was it kind of... It was shot very cinematically, in a very auteur, artistic way, which also spoke to me, but it was very much about one ongoing story. Just radiating out from the pilot that Laura Palmer was murdered, wrapped in plastic. This affected the whole town, and Dale Cooper is trying to to solve the mystery and as he solves the mystery we meet all these characters with all their problems so there's a soap opera element to it but it's also kind of parodying soap opera it's not at all like a hey we fix this problem this week and we move on to this problem next week it was very much like all escalating radiating out from the initial murder of Laura Palmer that was one of the show's strengths and ultimately one of its curses because the network ABC demanded after a while pretty early into the second season that they resolve who killed Laura Palmer and the show really struggled with that and kind of has infamous not as good back half of the second season because they weren't sure how to keep all of the plates spinning once they solved the initial case so it's almost like this super anti-law and order of like it's a procedural
0: where you are in so much trouble if you ever figure out (laughs) who done (laughs) it something you just said though it's reminded me a little bit of and again this is another show I've dropped off of about how people talk a little bit about the walking dead yeah yeah Comparing the comics to the show. And this is kind of what threw me a little bit in it. Because, I mean, I stepped off after the first season of that show. Came back once in, like, season whatever the most recent one was and immediately went away again because (laughs) because it was gross and brutal and i didn't really like it but i remember the thing of the comics and reading like 50 issues of that comic and having robert kirkman say we're never ever going to find out what caused the zombie apocalypse there's never going to be discussion of a cure this is not that story yeah then looking at that first season of that show and going oh they had to have a final episode in the cdc where they talk about oh the potential for the cure but then they got to blow that building up because That's not what it's about. And it's like, why are we even having this conversation? You know, this is not what this show is about. So the idea, like you said, of having the network come in and go, oh, hey, this thing, you need to solve this. And the people making the show being like, "Uh, it's not really about that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The Walking Dead is fascinating to me as well. I, I watched the first season and was only okay on it. And then I binge watched everything up to the most recent season. And I tell you, that's the way to watch Walking Dead because it does meander. But you don't get as frustrated if you binge watch. But The Walking Dead is fascinating to me because I'm fine with them not coming up with a cure of why this happened. Because the why isn't that interesting. What is interesting to me is the show has always been about how do you rebuild society? How do you create your morals when the world's kind of a wasteland? But they have slaughtered so many zombies. I truly believe that they should wrap up the show by, great, we've killed all the zombies. Now when somebody dies, we just stab them in the head. And now let's just rebuild society. They have it in them to just rebuild society, and they should, I think, soon.
0: Yeah, mandatory cremations 20 minutes after you die. (laughs) Yep, it's easy. (laughs) Problem solved. All we are is dust in the wind, dude. (laughs) But then, of course, you end up, and I think the comics had this problem, too, was that you then go, okay, well, then they have to have human antagonists. Since the zombies have become a a manageable threat. Yeah. It's like, okay, human antagonists. And then you get into, I think you may have noticed a trend. I tend to shy away when a work kind of glorifies in, like, either brutality or cruelty or things like that. It's the quickest way to get me to tune out. So that's when you get into, oh, we're going to meet this group of hunters, and they're all horrible, and everyone is tortured, and some people die, and we move on. And it's like... I don't know if I want that in my escapism right now. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. No, I think that's a really important point of entertainment and what entertainment speaks to me and Twin Peaks in particular. So, Twin Peaks, not surprisingly, given the name is literally Twin Peaks, has very explicitly been about
0: duality. About. I, I thought you were going to say, it's really about these two peaks, right? <laughs> and...
1: <laughs> Sorry. It kind Should of is. Duality? Yeah. Uh, it is it's that this is a good peak and this is a bad peak it's not literally ascribed to which mountain is the good one or which mountain is the bad one but there are you know mystical places that evil emanates from and there's mystical places that good emanates from and there are clearly characters who are cartoonishly good and clearly characters who are cartoonishly evil and it's one of the things that makes twin peaks powerful and lynch's work in general powerful is by spending just the right amount of time to me in the absolute horror, true, like really awful horror that just really gets in your soul and affects you that the contrast of the people who see the horror and want to make the world a better place makes that uh, goodness where it would normally seem kind of like, eh, Pollyanna or just safe, just glow and just have such power. And I think that's a lot of reason that people are attached to Dale Cooper too, because one half of this show has always been Laura Palmer. This girl who's tortured and murdered. And then the other half of it is this really well-meaning person who wants to make it right. To me, there's a really interesting balance of when you're telling a story that deals with the extremes of horror and hope. What's the exact right balance of the cocktail to make it compelling? And to make it speak to different people because you can't sit in the horror too long and you can't be like overly Pollyanna about the hope. I think Walking Dead is definitely a show that's like, you know what, nine parts, absolute
0: nihilistic horror and maybe just one little pinch of hope every once in a while. Oh, yeah. And when you get that hope, we're going to let it burn for a second and then we're going to stomp on it. Yes, exactly. This thing I want to ask specifically and I'm going to give a little context for this question. I've recently because like I mentioned in the pre-show, I've been doing a lot of sitting in front of a TV more so than usual because There's a baby in the house. Right. And my girlfriend especially often has to get up in the middle of the night to feed the baby because she has the ability to feed the baby in a way that I don't. (laughs) Uh, Go figure. So what she's been doing is she's been blowing through a lot of TV that has been backing up. Like she watched all of A Handmaid's Tale, which she was very glad she watched after she had the baby. And (laughs) then was like, hey, she's like, I've always wanted to watch Arrested Development. Have you ever watched Arrested Development? And I went, I thought for a second, I went, I think I watched like four or five of the first season. And it was okay. I didn't love it. And then I like did the math and I went. Okay, that was in, like, 2005. Maybe it's time to give that another try. Yeah. Because it's been, like, 12 years. And I watch it. And it seems incredibly modern. Like it seems like, especially considering that I've just, you know, mainlined all of Veep in the last year and a half, (laughs) Arrested Development seems incredibly modern and current. So I know the problem with going back to a lot of older shows. And God, I'm actually going to say this. 1991 was 26 years ago. Yeah. And so it's like, does Twin Peaks have anything that bumps for you? Or was it one of those things where it kind of fit the niche where it was ahead of its time and so therefore it doesn't feel as dated? What do you think? It does not feel very dated at all all because part of like
1: I said part of its explosion was being very cinematic in the way it was shot in the way the stories were told and basically every big name show that's a part of our current golden age Of television, the creators are publicly on record saying like, yeah, we were inspired by Twin Peaks. A lot of people are like, we are in this business because of Twin Peaks. So there's a part of it that looks timeless because everyone is still aping it now. There's also an element where a big part of the plot or sort of the theme and the idea is Cooper is coming into this world. It's set in 1989 and every episode of the original series is one day. So he's coming into it in February of 1989 and he is amazed and charmed that Twin Peaks is still a little slower, a little kinder, not quite caught up with the modern world. So it is explicitly a part of the original show that it's a little bit timeless. The only time that that magic gets broken is every once in a while, like a woman will walk in the background, like an extra will have the most 80s hair you've ever seen. Of like, (laughs) how did you make it out of that Slayer video and get into Twin Peaks? Like... Every once in a while, there's an extra that breaks the magic, but there's a magic that is a part of the idea of the show
0: that it's a little locked away and timeless in Twin Beaks. Yeah, there is something about about timeless shows or, or science fiction shows or something, or even just like shows that deal a lot in flashbacks, where there's a lot of dedication given to making it very specific to a time. Yeah. And the example I always go to is A League of Their Own because they go back to the 40s and show the 40s in like perfect detail. Yeah. And then you come back to the air quote modern day of 1991. And that's as much of a period piece now as the 1940s baseball stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like sometimes, in some ways, you just, you kind of can't get away from it as a creator. You get a little bit locked into your time. So many movies in the 90s, like you can, especially like the late 90s, early 2000s, you can date a movie. By the size of the cell phone.
0: <laughs> that yep. was exactly
1: 1999.
0: I actually had a, a recent example of that where I watched It Follows, which was a great movie. And they made a specific point of having every TV be an old CRT TV. Like oh, huge, nice. Huge, heavy, like wooden case TV. And at some point, people are watching it and it's some of them are black and white. Some of them are old TVs on top of older TVs. <laughs> there's rabbit ears and there's, there you see one cell phone and it's like a 2002 flip phone. Oh, wow. And that's one at the very beginning of it. And you don't see any other cell phones for the rest of the movie. But then also, like all the cars are from the late 70s and early 80s. So you've got... You know, a a lot of Chevette's driving around. Oh, cool. But then out of nowhere, one character has like this clamshell e-reader with a touchscreen that's actually fancier than anything we have right now. (laughs) So it's like, it's this like concerted effort to be like, okay, lots of old stuff, but also future, but also now. And go. Does it work for you? It worked for me at the time, although a couple of the things did kind of make me go, wait, when when are we again? The TVs especially. Yeah. something that drew me out. Because especially they had one that I remembered having in god it would have been like 94 and we bought it at a yard sale and it was like waist high and it was one of those big wooden cabinet tvs yeah <laughs> but the resolution was really terrible and it's like or i think i think when we moved we actually just left it at the house because we couldn't move it out, out of from where it was it was so too heavy weighs two tons right yeah yeah and so when I saw that, I, went, I stepped away from the movie for a second and started asking questions as opposed to being in it. Luckily, it's an incredibly atmospheric horror movie with a really creepy premise, so I wasn't worrying for long because I was scared out of my mind. <laughs>
1: Good. It is on my Netflix queue, so I am I'm happy to hear that it is even more interesting than I thought.
0: It's actually something that I would recommend doing the old school thing of putting the phone away, turning down the lights, and just giving it your full attention.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I I mostly watch so much television because I don't look at my phone when I watch uh, television or movies. So it is my true good breaking point from looking at my phone or my iPad or my computer.
0: For a while, I was doing it like as a rule, like especially if it was one of those, I'm going to sit down and watch a movie. I would put my phone on the charger in a different room, so I wasn't even like tempted by the screen lighting up for notification or something. And I think the one time I broke that rule was uh, my girlfriend and I were at her place, and we were watching Jupiter Ascending. And we put our phones away and about 10 <laughs> minutes, and she looked at me, and she saw my face, and she's like, go and get your phone.
1: Did you just need to live tweet it? You needed to express what you were experiencing?
0: I'm going to steal a a line from Twitter that I saw the other day. It was like, the fact that it's bad is the least interesting thing about that movie. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much going on. (laughs) I
1: have not seen that one either, so I I will plan to live tweet it.
0: The fact that bees can sense royalty is a plot point.
1: That's just beautiful to me.
0: I love that. I love that. And that's the thing. If if that rings that particular bell in you, then you will enjoy this movie. (laughs) I think I will.
1: I think it will, because it's it, that that line makes me think that it will maybe have a little bit in common with Twin Peaks, which makes me very happy. <laughs> oh, cool. Going off of the discussion we were just having about the absurdity of Jupiter Ascending, one of the other things I love about Twin Peaks, there is this idea that is seeded through all iterations of Twin Peaks. After the show went off the air, it eventually was picked up by the channel Bravo, and mm-hmm. David Lynch wrote new intros for each episode of the show that were performed by the log lady character Katherine Coulson, who recently passed away, and she's one of the characters in town who's kind of in tune with the more mystical side of Twin Peaks, so she gave these very cryptic descriptions of each episode, and this isn't really a spoiler, it's just kind of an idea that goes through Twin Peaks. The idea that the world might make sense, it's just that we don't really have the key code to unlock it. That different things in Twin Peaks that I'm sure you have popped up in your just kind of cultural osmosis, like the owls are not what they see. Well, what are the owls? (laughs) Creamed corn comes to take on a different meaning. That creamed corn is not just (laughs) this. gross thing you find in the the grocery store, it has a meaning. And in one of these Bravo intros, the log lady has this great speech about like, what does the smell of fresh strawberries mean? And it's just this really interesting idea, again, without being too just sort of like, I'm going to do acid and whatever is whatever. It's a somewhat grounded, but still like very floaty, very zen. Maybe we can't understand everything in the world, but it is worth looking at and it is worth questioning. And we're thinking about like, maybe there are other worlds, maybe there are other ideas. Ideas. Maybe if I just stare at something long enough, the way David Lynch's camera stares at things, and I really, really just take in a hallway, what will the hallway mean to me if I just really focus on it? And I think that's one of like the big picture ideas that goes through all of Twin Peaks that really resonates with me. It's very artistic, but also just a very nice way to look at the world.
0: And I think that's actually a nice place to end on. And you've definitely sold me on this. Like, because I've always been at the periphery. A former guest of the show, Andrew Isla, is part of a podcast called Don't Zap the Geek, where they're going <laughs> through uh, Twin Peaks. And okay. they, I think they've just made it up to the new stuff. It's one of those things where enough of my friends talk about it that I'm. At first, I had the. Uh, everyone's talking about it. I'm not sure I want to. Yeah. That kind of defensiveness where it's like, <laughs> I, I shouldn't have to watch this thing from 26 years ago. I could live my life. But honestly, I think you've sold me. I think, uh, you know, some of that optimism. And some of that rewarding of deep interest, I think, has gotten my attention. So I'm definitely going to check it out. Although it is a crapshoot whether it's actually streaming anywhere in Australia because we suck for that kind of thing. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope your baby pins
1: you in a way where you have to watch Twin Peaks.
0: <laughs> Although God God knows what watching Twin Peaks as an infant is going to do to my kid. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be disturbing for her. Him. Her? Is it a him or her? Your baby. Him. Him. Little boy named Hiro. Hiro? Yeah. That's awesome. His mom's Japanese. That's awesome. He's good baby. He's good value. Although he's quietly taken over my Instagram in a <laughs> movement that I'm referring to as Oops All Babies. So yeah. It's going to happen.
1: I understand.
0: All right, Joseph. So if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go?
1: Uh, you can go to my website if you still go to websites, which is becoming increasingly creaky, and ancient thing to do. But I have a website at josephscrimshaw.com. And then uh, I am on all the social media is at josephscrimshaw. My podcast
0: Obsessed is on Feral Audio. Fantastic. And yes, I definitely recommend people go and check it out. It's got a decent back catalog. How many episodes are you up to now? 178 is of this recording. So there you go. And it's one of those things where you can go back and kind of pick and choose things and be like, oh, I want to listen to either, let's say, this person, because you have a few repeat guests, or you can be like, you know, I want to pick out this particular work and hear about it. And so it's good that way. And so you can kind of dip in and out of the older ones. I wouldn't say it's sequential to the point where you have to start at episode one and plow through, but definitely people should check it out and go and cherry pick and then start doing what I did, which is just listening every week.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Yeah, cherry pick and then go week to week. Sounds like a good plan to me.
0: All right, Joseph, thank you so much for coming on. This has been fun.
1: Absolutely. Thank you, Lucas.
0: As if you know the story of Willowa Lake, Leviathan first in the deep, where her children sleep, she kept them Thank you very much to joseph scrimshaw for his time for joseph's signature cocktail he gave a refreshingly frank description of what he enjoys and i quote i uh enjoy a lot of alcohol i'm a fan of whiskey i generally like a peaty scotch for mixing i'm a fan of ginger beer also very much enjoy gin martini no olive with a twist and other martini like gin drinks such as a vespers as i too am a fan of a gin martini with a twist of lemon and I'm also a fan of the Vesper, as mentioned. So I started experimenting with some aperitifs and digestifs mixed with botanical gins, and I've come up with something that's, dare I say, dangerously drinkable. And so I present the Diane. In a shaker full of ice, combine two ounces of botanical gin, half an ounce of dry vermouth, half an ounce of sweet vermouth, and a dash of green chartreuse. This measurement can be varied a little bit when it comes to the chartreuse, depending on how bitter you want the drink. You can use as much as a teaspoon if you want, or it can be just a little splash into the shaker. Shake vigorously for 30 seconds until the outside of the vessel frosts over. Or if you're a purist who feels that shaking gin bruises the liquor, you can stir it if you like. Strain into a pre chilled cocktail glass and garnish with a twist of lemon. When the will is invoked, the recuperative powers of the physical body are simply extraordinary. Just give me a couple of drinks to get dressed. Enjoy. The Math View is recorded in Leichhardt, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are released every Wednesday evening, and if you'd like to be a guest on the show, simply send an email to themathview@gmail.com at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. Just to let you know, I have opened up January for new guest spots. You can follow the show on Twitter at the Math of you. And you can follow my Wacky Adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-D, on Twitter and Instagram, and Lokified82 on Snapchat. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can head on over to Patreon.com slash Lokified and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Although, I gotta say, I am not a fan of these new Patreon fees that will charge that 35 cents plus 2.9%. So if I find a better option, you guys will be the first to know. Patrons get early access to episode, physical mail, cursive tweets, and I would really just really appreciate it. I've also been posting some bonus cocktail recipes for each episode, and those are available to all patrons. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can head to Apple Podcasts in the country of your choice and leave a 5-star rating and helps people find the show. You can also write a review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music I play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. Go to bit.ly slash themathofyou, with capitals at the beginning of each word, to find a Spotify playlist with every song I've ever used going all the way back to episode one, including this one. It's a Real Indication, by Angelo Badalamenti, from the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me soundtrack, of course. I update the playlist as soon as the new episode goes live, so subscribe to get the new music in your ears. Also, just on a personal note, thank you to all the people who have been sending well wishes as I have been struggling with a bout of what I now know is mycoplasma pneumonia, which I've had for about a month, and it has been absolutely wrecking me. But I see all the messages you guys send, and it makes me feel a little bit better. Next week, I'll be talking to Emily Pearson, comic book and concept artist, about the progression from art into comics, and how to find the former in the latter. Join me, won't you? (laughs) When I say it's been an eventful morning, even though it's only 7 a.m., it's basically that, you know how you have that thing where you've got these really nice, like, giant cups of coffee, like, they look like giant teacups, and they're really narrow at the base? Yeah. And if you put that base on something that isn't entirely flat, that entire cup can, like, go all over the table, and you, and the floor, and the rug, <laughs> when you've got a podcast uh, to record in 15 minutes? <laughs> <laughs> Do you need more tea time? No, no. I'm tea cleanup time? I'm all good. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I may have ran around and you know thrown my robe in the laundry and grabbed paper towels and stuff and uh, went in and said started a, a conversation with my girlfriend in the other room and said something like, "It's okay, the stain came out of the rug." And it's never a way to start a conversation cuz I realized I hadn't No, good it way with, to end one. I haven't prefaced it with I dumped a bunch of coffee all over the floor. But it's fine. It's fine. We're all <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good. Oh, audacity. You're awful, but the price is right.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I feel like Odesti is like a family member. Like, really, really disagreeable sometimes. Once you figure
0: out how they work, it basically works. (laughs) You can loan things to them and just never get them back sometimes, but you you can't really hold against them. They're old. They forget stuff. (laughs) Exactly.
1: What have you been up to? I have mostly been up to trying to stay focused and not procrastinate too much. It's not even procrastination. It is multi-procrasti-tasking, where I'm doing one thing, and then I half finish it, and I remember, oh, I should do that other little thing, like promote this podcast or finish that text to my dad. And then when I go to pick up another device, I forget that for a minute,
0: and then hours and hours disappear. I do know that feeling. And when someone <laughs> pulls you up on it, you always get that slightly defensive anger because you were doing it. It's not like you forgot it entirely. It's no. the I get that with them because I've turned off all, a lot of my notifications on my phone. Primarily, it happened when my partner was in the hospital having our baby. I'm just like, I cannot deal with a million dings off my phone right now. And it's been great. I didn't turn a bunch of them back on. So every once in a while, my mom will like put something on Facebook Messenger and I'll just be like... I won't see it. <laughs> My girlfriend will be like, you have to, to message back to your mom. And so I'm, I'll look at it and she's like, all right, she wants to Skype at some point. So I got her. Did the math and I'm like, all right, I'll ask him next time I see her whether it's cool to do it at 12 on this day, because I don't want to say yes until I'm clear, and then nothing will happen, nothing will happen, and then she'll be like, your mom is written back again, and I'm like, no, <laughs> I was waiting to talk to you. I, I did think about it. I did. I promise.
1: <laughs> I have never really thought of the strategy of having a baby would somehow help me focus, but now I mm-hmm. am thinking maybe that's the right way to go.
0: I won't say they're a huge time
1: saver, but they <laughs> definitely, definitely keep your attention. Yes, you have to focus on the baby, right?
0: Although I have gone into great detail on this podcast and in other venues as well about how I've gotten better at watching movies because there will be times when I will be just like plugged under a baby. And it's like you're not moving for the next hour to 90 minutes until this kid falls asleep. (laughs) And so it's like, all right, you know, what's showing on at the moment? Clint Eastwood Marathon. Cool. I guess we're watching all of High Plains Drifter then. (laughs)
1: So you're pinned by your baby and enjoying Clint Eastwood.
0: Yes. Also, they show, because over here in Australia, they don't show Jeopardy on normal TV. Okay. They show it on what's called Foxtel Classics, which is like where they show like, you know, your Andy Griffith show or The Virginian or whatever else. And so they'll do like three shows a day and you can DVR that shit and just like (laughs) watch like an hour and a half of Jeopardy and feel real smart. But you can't (laughs) yell out the answers because you'll wake the baby.
1: Do you ever get stressed that the wrong thing will be on television in the moment where you happen to get pinned by your baby and and then resent the baby because it pinned you at the wrong time and you're stuck watching something you don't want to? I have watched a lot of Love It or List It, and I have
0: watched a lot of Real Housewives of various cities, so I think I have faced that fear and moved on. Oh, that's, good. that's good. Although uh, I have learned, thanks to my partner watching the Real Housewives of Toronto, that Australians can't do Canadian accents and really shouldn't. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. For some reason, it's just... It's just something that they can't do, and I mean, I grew up in, in Vancouver and all over Canada, and I don't have a particularly strong Canadian accent, but when, you, when you're talking to people from Toronto, and everything's, oh, you can go into the house, and it'll take about five minutes, and you'll hear an Australian do it, it's like, it's about, and I'm like, no, no please, <laughs> please, please stop doing it, it hurts my soul.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love uh, listening to American accents that are pretty much just Texas mm-hmm. or Brooklyn, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Maybe
0: Minnesota. I'm originally from Minnesota, and there are a lot of very exaggerated <laughs> oh, yeah. Minnesota accents, yeah. I've actually had a few Minnesotans on the show. It's just one of those things where I had Aiden Sullivan on, and she got really mad. She's like, you don't sound like that. No one <laughs> sounds like that.
1: There, Like, you know, it's like a lot of stereotypes. There is a little bit of truth in it. Some people sound like that, but it is also, it's not just the accent. You know, it's the attitude and I think that's true with a lot of accents, mm. but you know, a lot of Minnesotans aren't the just sitting back casually commenting on the snow and ludafisk all
0: the time. <laughs> Something about like there are there are idioms you can use. And it's funny because we'll talk about comics later. We can bring up Chris Claremont and his amazing phonetic accents. The thing is, there are idioms, but those idioms come out really strange. Like, I've got a friend here in Sydney who's lived in Sydney for 20 years. And she's originally from Chicago and still sounds like she commutes to Logan Park every day. (laughs) Uh, Logan Square. Not Logan Park, what I'm saying. But when I talk to her, and the thing is, because she's been here so long, she's adapted all of these, like, expressions and stuff. And I'll hear her say stuff, and I'll go, oh, Jesus, is that what I sound like? I'm never using that expression again. <laughs> oh, there's a bunch of Bogans out there. And I'm like, N- no, no, don't say it. And she, and things, I don't even think she thinks about it anymore. Okay. It's just... For a while I worked in call centres and I would have to listen to my own phone calls and hear me try and make small talk with Australians and just like just fail at some of the expressions or <laughs> things like saying, Oh, we've got Australia Day coming up on the twenty-fourth and hear them go, Australia Day is the twenty-sixth. And I'm like, Yes, yes it is. You are in fact correct. I'm not from here. I have my own customs.
1: <laughs> Your own Australia Day that
0: you celebrate yourself personally on the twenty fourth. <laughs> thing is I, I would forget when Canada Day was except for again my mom sends me an email or calls every time did, did you know it's Canada Day? yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah mom although I had the ultimate out because my kid was actually born on Canada Day right so I'm never going to forget it And my mom actually called the shot, because we went in to have the baby on the 30th of June. You know, messaged the family to say, hey, guys, this is the whole damn show. This is going to happen. And my mom messaged back, going to be a Canada Day, baby. (laughs) And I like this, the equivalent of Babe Ruth pointing at the right field fence. Yeah.
1: Does that mean something to your mom? Is it like a special, like, is it your child was born under uh, the sign of Canada, and is therefore the most Canadian,
0: or does it have (laughs) meaning to her? It probably does, but again again, she is the kind of mom where... You know, I've been in Australia for 14 years, and I have received many, many care packages with <laughs> T-shirts that just say Canada or a Canadian, like, World Championships of Hockey flag. Interesting. When I'm, like, 23, that's not so bad. I'll hang it over my desk at work and stuff. But it's like, I'm 35 now. I, I, I don't think I can do that <laughs> legally. Someone will pull me over.
1: Does she want Everyone to know that you're from Canada, is she afraid that you are going to lose your Canadianness, or actually get, like, Australia amnesia and forget you're from Canada? or
0: Austronesia. <laughs> I, I could make it work. Maybe. I don't know. I think it's one of those things where it's like she'll be in line at, like, Walmart or Canadian Tire or something and see something next to the checkout and go, I'll buy that for the next time I send Lucas something. Aw, that's kind of sweet. It is kind of sweet. And that's the thing. is The intent is, is always good. And so you can't knock it too hard. It's just, then you look around and you go, I have so much stuff. Well, you know, if you get too much, feel free to send
1: me a random Canada shirt so I can just confuse people here in Los Angeles about whether or not I'm from
0: Canada. (laughs) You're like, no, I'm just a fan. (laughs) I just like this shirt. It's just an awesome shirt. I'm not professionally Canadian. I'm an interested amateur. (laughs)